I'm joined here today with Angela Radcliffe and Craig uh, Lipset. Uh, for brief background, um, I've gotten the chance to know Craig over the past couple of years. Craig is an innovator in the space of clinical trials, over a decade of experience at Pfizer, heading clinical innovation, investments, and uh, subsequently has been partnering and advising tech companies, pharma companies, everyone across the board. If you want to know what's new in clinical trials, Craig is your man um, around R&D. It is true. Uh, and I'm also joined with Angela Radcliffe, who's also has a depth and wealth of experience uh, really across healthcare, payer, provider, distributor, and most recently spent over a decade um, well, working at BMS and innovating in the clinical trial space, leading enterprise digitalization at BMS uh, from discovery and R&D, and uh, also has a passion for how clinical trials can change lives and has uh, impacted many lives for the people that she knows and loves. And so I'm um, really excited to be here with both Angela and Craig. Today, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence in clinical trials, probably a topic that gets talked about a lot, but um, hearing from Craig and Angela provides a whole different depth and perspective and expertise that I'm just excited to le personally learn about today and, and share with the world. Um, and so thank you both for joining. Um, and we're going to jump right in. I'll ask a, a big question to start it off. So artificial intelligence is all the rage. How much is this hyper reality? I mean, you guys have been in the in the trenches operating clinical trials. Like, how much is this really going to change the way clinical trials are run, and how is artificial intelligence going to do so? Um, Angela, uh, we can start with you, and then love to hear from Craig. Sure. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, nice to be with you and Craig today. Um, I would love to kind of start by saying I think people who talk about artificial intelligence. Um, and what it's going to do in healthcare, they fall along a spectrum, right? On one end, they're the alarmists. On the other hand, you know, they're the evangelists, the champions. Um, I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I think I'm somewhere in the pragmatist to optimist realm. Um, and that is because I think you would have to be sort of under a rock to not see what artificial intelligence is already doing um, in the space. With that said, uh, I think we have to, pro, pro, you know, approach this very pragmatically and understand that um, artificial intelligence is just like any other tool in that it has to be used uh, in the right way, using the right data. And we still have a lot of foundational work to really harness the advantage of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Great. What about you, Craig? Where do you at? Where do you fall on that spectrum? I definitely uh, uh, fall somewhere in that same middle ground. I'm, I'm enthusiastic and optimistic. I tend to be about new opportunities to to bring progress and change in the field. But uh, I think there are legitimate concerns and trepidation out there. Um, I know there are also those that just look at the the constant cycle of new technology being hawked as being uh, the great disruptor, blockchain, and what comes next. And, you know, these things haven't necessarily 
made a huge change in how people are operating. Even even electronic data capture in clinical trials hasn't really progressed or evolved in a tremendous way over the last three decades. And so, you know, I can see why some may look and say, all just additional hype and rhetoric and noise. But I, I do caution those that want to just dismiss AI as being another source of, uh, of hype. There are real world places where AI is making an impact in clinical trials and drug development today. And very, as Ann said, very practical opportunities for AI over the next few years. Do either of you think that, um, so if we try and like take that spectrum of a hype and how it's going to change and cure lives, change the world to it's, it's like cryptocurrency, which I don't know what that really did except, except for help traffic drugs and stuff. Um, if we think about if you're in the middle of that scale, is it going to move the needle around the time frame that it takes to run a clinical trial, seven to 10 years on average, or the couple billion dollars that it takes to operate one? Uh, do you think it's if it falls in the middle of that scale there that you mentioned, do you think it's going to change any of the real outcomes therapies coming quicker to market for cheaper you think it's going to impact any of those two areas i'm going to go with it depends craig <laughs> because um I, look i think it's inevitable that we're going to see some impact um i say it depends because there are some very obvious use cases for ai to improve drug development to decrease cycle times and it starts all the way back at can we identify candidates that are going to be more productive before we even put them right into testing. Um, and then of course, and I know we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but there's all sorts of opportunities to refine the way we handle operational data and clinical trials to make things more efficient and faster and more predictive and all that good stuff. But my question really is, are we going to use artificial intelligence to impact the big things? So are we going to finally take a tool like AI to impact things like the way that we promote health literacy so people are ready and willing to participate in our clinical trials? Tech only goes so far. So for me, it's an it depends on how much we can keep humans in the loop and how much we can keep humans at the center when we're embracing this new tech. Yeah, I, I hate to double down on it depends, but I think that one thing we'll, we'll, we can talk a little bit more about is I think this industry has an adoption issue uh, in general with uh, new technologies. I think it has a, a love-hate relationship. It loves to explore, it loves to opine, it loves to experiment, but it has a fear of commitment. It has a fear of change. Um, and so I, I think that you know these great opportunities may exist, but will they get pulled through, especially as Ange points out, those use cases that can be the game changers. There are some use cases we can talk about that are very near-term practical practical efficiency plays. They're good. I don't want to sound dismissive of them. We should implement many of those around process automation and other very discrete use cases. But do we have the fortitude, the long-term commitment to do some of the bigger dramatic changes? I'm not sure. I'm afraid too often in our industry, we, we get lost with the next big thing before we've fully committed to any of the near-term opportunities we may see on the, the to execute and scale. So Craig, it sounds like you're saying our our relationship status on Facebook between industry and AI is it's complicated. It's complicated. There's just a lot of swiping going on, Ange. <laughs> There's a lot of swiping going on. When I think about like the big waves of adoption at life science companies in 
2000 when a sales rep met with the doctor. They wrote it down on a notepad, went back to headquarters, and then typed it into a computer that was not in the cloud. And the cloud CRM took over. And it was like, that is something clearly we should do, where you don't need to be at um, Pfizer headquarters or Merck headquarters to type something in. That was like one where it, the acceleration was so obviously advantaged. The other one was like 2000, early 2000s, mid 2000s, mobile came out. Five years later, everyone had an iPad. Everybody. And like, uh, they, it wasn't like some conspiracy, hey, pharma friends, let's go get iPads. It was such a leapfrog technology that the whole industry just adopted it because it was just like night and day better. You guys are not yet there in AI for thinking in four to five years, so many processes are going to be unwritten and rewritten with how AI could transform. You're not fully there yet. Well, look at how we've implemented, you know, even things like electronic data capture. We didn't really change that much of the process. We just kind of digitized the process and shifted responsibilities and roles where we're still doing uh, a lot of this just as a data capture exercise. All we did was really shift instead of it being written on paper and mailed off to a CRO or other group to do data entry, we're having study coordinators and investigators do the data entry up front in the process. But you know, our, our ability to really rewrite the SOPs has, has been disappointingly difficult. And some will say, well, this is a highly regulated, important space where we're testing new medicines with humans. We have important guardrails around safety and regulatory, to which I would question, we're testing cutting edge new science. And we're using legacy approaches as uh, with the excuse of this being regulated and, and important. But we're, we're taking a cell and gene therapy and introducing that in a human. And in many cases, can't do the informed consent on a tablet. We have to give them a piece of paper. Um, it seems nonsensical. And it seems like a very lame excuse to just keep pointing and saying, well, it's hard. And we're, we're a regulated industry. Yeah, I'm so glad you went to e consent, Craig, because that's exactly where my brain went. I'm in a trial right now, and I had to reconsent at this last study visit. And once again, it was on paper. And I thought, why, why am I still doing this on paper? We've been talking about e-consent for years. And I do think there's a disconnect between the way we think about the commercial end of the spectrum, Ariel, to use your example, and the, the development side of the spectrum, because the earliest places these use cases for AI are being adopted and already used on the ground to make a difference, it's in commercial. It is in the chat bots that are now being put on those iPads for our reps who are going to go into the field. And when, you know, a clinician has a question about the drug that they're discussing or, you know, with an MSL, they're going to be able to, to look at the entire corpus of information and every clinical trial and every publication that's happened about um, the drug. And they're going to be able to answer the question in a very informed way immediately, thanks to the power of AI. And yet we do continue to put up these barriers around um, how regulated, how difficult, how controlled, how scientific um, discovery is and, and development is. And I think Craig's 110% right that we continue, continue to use things like regulatory hurdles and our scientific designs as obstacles. Um, you know, I was talking to someone who, you know, works very high up in tech um, that we really consider a thought leader in the clinical research space just two years ago on an internal sort of, um, uh, you know, conversation that we were having at BMS. Um, 
and I asked her, you know, hyper hope for digital twins. And she said, oh, hype. Like, I don't know why people are even talking about digital twins. And I, and I thought like now fast forward two years later, we're using digital twins in a lot of places. Um, but where are we still not using them in the way we should be in R and D we're, we're using them in global product supply, but we're not using them in R and D in the same way. So it is a really interesting thing that even within our industry, within our own companies, um, we still have sort of this, our own little hype cycle going on, uh, as far as how we adopt these technologies. It is true that you see, I tell friends that don't work in pharma, like these sales teams at pharma companies are like rocket scientists. Like, oh my God, you wouldn't believe the tech and precision that they use. It is unbelievable because it moves the needle for dollars and cents for these pharma companies. I do wonder with some of the regulatory changes with IRA, it, it will constrain and force changes. I'm curious about that. So you mentioned some processes that um, you think AI can help with during the drug discovery, clinical development, clinical operations part. Uh, for our viewers that are in the seats, VP of ClinOps at a pharma company, what should they be thinking about? Which processes do you think should be top of the list that you think this just has to be replaced with generative AI and some of the latest tech? I think we can um, we can think about the drug development process and, and really start to map in a lot of spaces for AI across that continuum, starting from the internal data-driven decision-making that we have to make around portfolio decisions and prioritization, straight through to study design, planning, site selection, and recruitment strategy. All of those spaces are great because they're consuming a lot of diverse data and they're internal decision-making. Things get a little more complicated complicated once the clinical trial starts to involve our shared economy with research sites and with patients and with regulators. So those upstream bits are ones we can more easily control and implement in our orgs. From that point, it starts to get a little more uh, energy focused on how can we use AI as a part of our measurements and endpoint strategies? How do we use AI for, uh, for different types of predictive analytics to monitor our trial performance for both quality and operations. And then the place that you were hitting on, how do we start to automate more within the context of the study, whether that's generative AI for narrative authoring or other types of regulated document creation, patient support in our trials using generative AI, or as Ange was hitting on earlier, some much more aspirational opportunities such as digital twin synthetic data that we can start to create. I think that for a lot of ClinOps leaders today, a great starting place is just around process automation, especially back-end processes, especially things that are happening within your house or together with your CROs. It gets a little more complicated and takes a little more commitment to make these, inter inter uh, oppor these opportunities really scale and implement when we're working with our sites and with regulators. So start internally and start looking at your own in-house processes. But if you really want to get the big lift, if you really want to be uh, drive the, the bigger change in opportunity, you really start have to uh, need to start looking at, at opportunities like synthetic data, digital twins, and these longer bets that are really going to change the game in terms of the unit economics of drug development require fewer patients and less time to get the job done. Yeah, one of our, our mutual friends, um, Malin Kim Kolkar, uh, he who's spent plenty of time in pharma and, and out in the, the startup world, he said something really insightful, I think that follows on to, to what you just said, Craig, which is 
let's also be really discerning right now. And I'm paraphrasing him, but let's be really discerning right now about where we choose to use artificial intelligence versus where we actually follow through on some of the tools we've already had, like RPA. So if we weren't willing to use low code, no code software before, maybe let's try that now before we go crazy trying to create some AI process for this. Or, you know, if there's an opportunity to, to do some sort of, you know, process automation, is AI really the place to do that? Well, it's a great um, proving ground and opportunity to take the foundational skills we have and prepare ourselves for AI. But there are a lot of these things we could have already solved with some of the tools we already had pre-AI. So let's be discerning about where we unleash this new, exciting uh, frontier of AI. So we spoke about how you're both like on the scale of hype to reality, somewhere in the middle. When do you guys think you're actually going to see it implemented in terms of changing some of these either back office processes or whatever it might be? Is it like next year, following year, 2030? Uh, given what we spoke about and what you both mentioned around uh, adoption of new technology and different ways of doing things in our industry, when do you think this is uh, realistic to happen? Craig, what's your finger in the wind on this? <laughs> Sadly, the adoption cycle for technology and clinical research has historically been about 20 years. Um, when we look at electronic data capture, mobile tools, ePro, ECOA, um, and all the like, um, areas like decentralized trials saw uh, the, the adoption cycle compressed because of an event. Right, the pandemic was an event that was a forcing function. Now, the question today is, are there real forcing functions, as you hint at, like the IRA and changing the reimbursement landscape? Is that enough of a forcing function on drug development and DevOps organizations to change how they're operating? So far, I'd say no. So far, the forcing function has been headcount reduction and cutting investments in near-term IT spend rather than doubling down on those near-term investments to see them push through and to realize the benefits. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. It's not going to be one, three, or five years in this industry unless there's, unless there's a real event that drives dramatic change. I think the only other way to drive rapid adoption is to find to find those strategies that we can demonstrate and prove their impact of these approaches outside of pharma, show its validation, show that it, it can actually work. Now, what does that mean? We can't just rely on small biotech to implement these things. It's that most biotech companies don't have the internal resource and uh, wherewithal to do that. And so what might be the other allies? Is it going to be advocacy groups have a, that have a very different risk tolerance and can have the capital to support development today? What are the other entities that will rise up and start to accelerate and demonstrate that we can use these approaches in a meaningful way and then bring that back into pharma as something that's seen as de-risked? I think that's really insightful as always, Craig. I, I sort of feel like, um, to your point, one of the places we're going to see the earliest traction is investment preservation opportunities. So when you're in that cost cutting mode, you're not in tackle, you're not going out and trying the new things and spending the money on pilots and you know all that good stuff. You are trying everything in your power to preserve the investments you've already made and level those up so you can get more value out of them. So I think we might see um, some some IT teams, uh, you know, digital 
innovation teams, et cetera, doubling down on the investments they've already made and existing tech that we should have already adopted, you know, some of the stuff like e-consent and then some of the new features and in, in the different, you know, ECOA platforms, et cetera, and looking to use AI as a blocking strategy to say, hey, we made this good investment and we can get more out of it for you now because AI is now improving what we have given you. So the things you didn't like about some of these things that stopped adoption, well, maybe we can fix that for you now. So I don't think that that's actually maybe the best use of our, our time and money, but I do think that uh, sort of a, a, you know, a block, a preserve investment strategy is when we might see sort of creep out and help us get our arms around what the real impact could be if we were willing to truly invest and adopt in some of these solutions. I hope it's not 20 years. I hope it's not 20 years. <laughs> uh, that would be crazy if it's 20 years. It would be such a laggard in terms of like the world order of industries uh, if it takes that long, even if it takes five or 10 years. There's a societal... Um pressure that I think we'll start to see here, Ariel. I think that um, patients and other groups have more voice, more visibility, more access to resources than ever before. Um, in, in the past, we could be laggards with adoption because there really wasn't much accountability. There really wasn't much oversight visibility by stakeholders like patients. I think that's, I think that's different today, and hopefully that will help to create pressure that uh, this industry hasn't necessarily had to drive, adopt, and change. The perspective that I have is when I go and talk to these pharma companies, half of the big, especially top 20, half of them are trying to hire people to work on generative AI in-house. Uh, and then when I talk to different tech companies, Microsoft or Google or startups, they're trying to do the same thing. I'm curious in the next five to 10 years, who's going to bring the adoption? Is it a pharma company building up the technical expertise to build it themselves? Is it a tech company going to do it? Is it a consult? Like who's actually going to make this change happen? I'm curious what you, what you guys believe. Mm, I'm sort of split on this one because I, you know, I've come from a company that is hiring their experts and trying to upskill their entire, you know, enterprise on the use of AI. And then I have friends who work in, in other organizations who went that route and they've already abandoned that, that approach. I do think we're going to see uh, collaboration and partnership prevail in the next few years on all levels, because I think that we're starting to realize to survive in this new environment, one where patients are much more in control, um, as they should be, that pre-competitive intelligence sharing and partnership where we take someone's expertise and pair it up with someone else's expertise you know, there's there's a couple of different schools of thought, but um, I think a lot of people believe, look, pharma should do what pharma is good at. Like, let's discover drugs, let's do the science and let tech do what tech is good at. And I'd love to see us get away from this um, argument that has played out, you know, off and on in, in our social media streams, et cetera, et cetera, around, isn't it great that, you know, these tech uh, driven healthcare initiatives have failed? We've told them healthcare was hard. They didn't listen to us. Ha 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 ha. You know, they they failed. Um, how about uh, we take those two uh, types of expertise and merge them together and and take the best of the best instead of sort of not rooting for the other to succeed, which unfortunately has been, you know, really out there in our environment lately. Ariel, I've got smart friends out there and pharma companies that are maybe following a certain strategy for the life of me. I cannot understand why any 
pharma company would build versus buy in any space where there is an, either an existing capability or there is a, uh, a very, very well-funded uh, company that is focused on that algorithm and measurement um, as their exclusive product in the space. I think that uh, if there is nothing, if there's truly nothing, if a company does the landscape assessment and there's a dearth of a certain type of algorithm or tool, then they may have to build. Even then, they should not build with the expectation that they're going to own that and manage it in the long term. It needs to be done with a very short-term mindset and then get it out and figure out how to partner and transition that work. But companies today, pharma companies that are of the mindset that they could build portfolios of algorithms and maintain those as competitive assets in the long term, I think are nuts. Um, companies that are well capitalized, that are leveraging far more diverse data resources across different sponsor organizations are much better poised to be the long-term winners in those spaces. Um, I, I don't know if it's, if it's just the belief that algorithms are easy or it's the belief that, that they are smarter because they're more embedded with the operations but it's a great short-term mindset, but for companies that are doing that, thinking that's their long-term play, I really think that's going to prove to be a mistake. That, so you heard it here first, you're nuts if you're trying to build it in-house. I agree with that, by the way. Uh, if a company has $100 million and all they're doing is focusing on one algorithm and have hundreds of people are doing it, it's tough for anybody in the world to compete against that. Um, so we spoke a lot about the potential benefits um, what are the risks here? Uh, what, what's behind the corner? What's the skeleton in the closet that, um, again, you're a VP of ClinOps, ClinDev, head of feasibility. What should you be worried about when it comes to artificial intelligence and clinical trials? I think we're still sitting on a mountain of unfair data, fair being the, the acronym, right, for findable, interoperable, accessible, and reusable, um, or FLAIR if you throw lineage in there now, apparently. Um, and we need to get our houses in order first. And if we don't, then we're going to be feeding into all sorts of unintended consequences like bias and other things that we've been trying to avoid and, and overcome. So well said. And by the way, flare data, I like that. It has a certain office space suspenders with how much flare data I can I can wear when I'm running my study. Right. But I, I think that's the, this, this intersection of... You know, in, in so many companies today, there's been this momentum about patient inclusion and, and making patients a part of their work and patient centricity. And in parallel, there's this energy around data science and AI. And I feel like they're running on different tracks and they're they're going to start to keep, they're going to keep diverging. And we have to force these tracks to come back together. I think very naturally they're going to, they're going to move in opposite, potentially opposite directions. And so when we're talking about equity and transparency, when we're talking about making sure we're leveraging data that, um, was equitably sourced and represents the diversity of, of the stakeholders we need to engage. I think that takes effort and forces us to bring those rails back together. Very insightful. I love that. Um, okay. So you heard it here first. Uh, we are somewhere on the hype and reality scale, somewhere in the middle. Uh, unfortunately, our industry has taken a while to adopt technology. And so there's a healthy skepticism around it. Uh, if you're looking to go and do it, yourself, find a good partner, 
uh, be tough to maintain it long term internally. And we need to make sure we um, all the various interests of stakeholders, patients, advocacy groups, physicians um, are representative when we're uh, building AI here. And so I just want to thank Craig and Angela for sharing their insights. Uh, hopefully uh, the listeners learned a lot. I know I did uh, from this. And so thank you so much for joining and sharing uh, today. Mm-hmm.